Hello everyone and welcome to Documentation Not Included. It's Thursday at 7pm GMT and we are live on twitch.tv forward slash DNI stream. It's time for episode 1.3, 12 file configuration blues. Sorry for the bad title, bad pun. Um, my fault this week. I am Chris Seabock, as most people who watch the show will know. And unfortunately Josie cannot be with us today. Um, but we are joined by a new guest, Steve Collins. So hello Steve, can you please Hi, tell, tell everybody... Everyone. Tell everybody what you do, what what you uh, do, and what we're here for. Okay, I'm Steve Collins. Um, I'm a contract developer architect. Been contracting for 12 years now. Been working professionally for 25 years, but started back in the 80s writing code on the ZX Spectrum. Uh, so, yeah, I, I show my age now. It's <laughs> the grey beard. Um, so, yeah, just lately I've been going to uh, various user, .NET user groups and talking about configuration. Right, so and that is the title of today's show. Yeah. So, um, as as always, a big hello to everybody in chat. There's a, a little bit of stuff going on in Twitch already. Um, please do get involved in the show. It is live. We do field questions, and if there's anything that's relevant, um, we will read them out and answer them. If they again, if they are part of the subject that we we've got on today. So, before we get going, we have an icebreaker question. Um, this is something that. Josie insists on on having in the show uh, and it, it's basically something that allows us to get to know our guests and us a little bit um, I have very quickly prepared one today because as you see Josie isn't here and she normally does it so Steve if you yeah. could start a charity what oh, would it be and okay. why oh gosh I think it probably be something to do with homelessness Okay. Um, it, 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 we're a first world country and we shouldn't be in the state that we're in with homelessness around the country. So I think it'd be something to do with that. We, you know, very weirdly that, that my wife came home from the park. She goes for a walk around the park every day, my, my wife at the moment. And uh, she came home from the park and just randomly, she saw two homeless people at the front of the park. It's only, it, we're in a, like a, a sleepy town you know it's not mm. a busy place and um she said to me oh i went to go i just went to the shop um up the road and got some soup and a sandwich and it was something out of the bank my, my wife's a kind person but she i just didn't expect her to say that you know and it was yeah it's like these people were just they were blatantly homeless they weren't the the ones that you yeah. see begging in town centers occasionally that probably aren't homeless sometimes yeah. but yeah i yeah. i i agree i think uh it is a problem that needs to be sorted. But anyway, I, mine, um, I, I would probably have an animal charity because I'm not into humans. I don't do humans. <laughs> um, <laughs> everyone, again, people who listen to the show know that I'm very into guinea pigs as well because my, uh, my wife's a big fan of guinea pigs and we're involved in a local charity. But I'd love to have a sanctuary of some sort. There's uh, some places I've been in America that have um, exotic animal sanctuaries where mm. they've rescued exotic animals from people who've got them without actually considering you know the benefits of them so i'd love yeah. to do that kind of thing i'm, I'm cool. very much into that okay so before we get go uh, no we've done our icebreaker so um onto the show in fact this uh this show is called 12 file configuration blues and what we're going to do is talk about configuration in applications probably going to bleed into a few other areas as well but um, both steve and i are .NET developers um we're both by the sounds of it in similar boats i do architectural stuff as well um so we're probably going to get quite deep i imagine 
And in yeah. the show, normally we don't get that geeky. It's a geeky show. It's a software <laughs> development show. But most of the things that we talk about are like business processes and, you know, how to improve teams and, you know, how to run a, run a business as a contractor or freelancer. So it's really nice to get back down to our roots and start talking about something, something geeky. So let's start with a question. All right. Go on then. So why do developers use configuration files historically? Okay. Um, I think it comes down to four main reasons, really. Um, values that you know you're going to change in the future, so you don't want to hard bake them into your source code. Um, values that may differ between different environments, so you've got your dev connection strings, test connection strings, production connection strings, things like that. Um, something that's come about more over the last few years is feature switches, so you mm -hmm. want to turn certain things on or off. Um, and most important for me, and I know this is one that Josie was really keen on, sensitive values that should not be in source control. Absolutely, API keys and that kind of thing. Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. Connection um, strings with usernames and passwords to SQL Server. So nice. You know, I want to. I want to. Just before we move on, I want to explore that a little bit. I want to explore okay. the, the security side of things. Yeah. So historically, um, we've had. I've. I've. I mean, we've probably both seen lots of hard-coded values you know strings in 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 yeah in the code that shouldn't be there for any reason yeah. whatsoever and sometimes sometimes that's done because because of legacy sometimes it's done because of ignorance or yeah. sometimes it's done because of laziness yeah um i have seen quite a few times okay let, let me let me phrase this a different way as a question what what is the better way to store sensitive values then if you need to change have have an api key in the source code yeah. where you're calling an external api what's a better way to to handle that okay so now we're going to sort of drill down into dotnet world which is my comfort zone so especially in dotnet core so one of the things you can do is dotnet core supports key vaults so yep. you've got a key vault in Azure, there's a key vault in AWS, HashiCorp have got a key vault as well. So those are up in the cloud. They've either got software or hardware encryption. So you can put your keys in there. You get a nice little dashboard, put, put them all in, and then you can call out to them. They're encrypted down the line to your application. And it's only once they're in your application that they become decrypted and you can use them. Mm -hmm. So that way they don't touch your source control at all. Mm -hmm. The other ways you can do it is in .NET Core. Um, Microsoft have got Wises now, and you've now got a user secrets that they've you got, can do. Sorry, sorry, they've got what, you, sorry? User secrets. No, no, before that, Microsoft have oh, what, sorry? Got Wise to it. Oh, Wise to it. I thought it was yeah. a, a new term I hadn't heard of. <laughs> <laughs> just, just misheard no, that, you. No, they have got Wise to the situation. Um, so they've got user secrets. So you can right-click on your um, .NET Core project and say, add user secrets. That gives a GUID inside your project file. Mm -hmm. And what that does is that is that used to go to a folder within your profile in Windows or in Linux or on Mac. And there you've got a folder that's got the same GUID and you can have a JSON file and you can put them in there. So you've got access to them on your developer machine, but they don't go to source control. Mm -hmm. So that way you can fiddle them out to your heart's content as a developer, not committing anything. So so what about when we are creating a CI system then or a CD yeah. system and we need to be able to deploy 
different versions of the application into these environments that you mentioned earlier. Okay. What is the best? Because that, that having a key on my machine isn't particularly relevant then. No. That's just for no. me. So, as a so in those, um, certainly um, if you're using Azure DevOps, what used to be Visual Studio Team Services, um, in their build system, you can have a vault of your secrets mm -hmm. up in your CD system. So again, it, that sort of gets injected. The way it can do it is also via things like environmental variables yep. and command line switches. So that way you can have, say you've got um, a deployment environment, you can go and set your environment variables outside and just roll your code, code out. And as long as your code is looking for environmental variables, it'll find them. Doesn't touch source control, doesn't touch your CD or CI system. Your answers are all correct. <laughs> Thank you. Do I get prized? Uh, uh, no, the, the reason I ask that is because a lot of the time, a lot of the time developers struggle with this. It is something that, especially like the junior developers, they'll sometimes struggle with, well, I just need this value and it needs to, what, what do I do with it? And I don't, they don't really realize how damaging um, it can be putting your variables, even in a config file, because we're talking about config files here. But yeah. if if we have a we've separated the API key, we've put it into a config file variable, and then we push it to the source code, that's the, the source control, we immediately have security vulnerabilities there. Yeah. We also have potential problems with um, with developers, other developers accessing systems that they shouldn't access. There may very well be an integration test that's been written that uses that API key, and that API key may not have been, you know, it could be on a production, it could be a production API key or something like that. So removing those things and removing that responsibility from developers is key and, and really yeah. important, especially in big enterprise systems. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've uh, I've very recently done a lot, lot, quite a lot of work with Docker, um, and that yeah. that uses. Heavy, well, heavy, almost everything these days uses configuration files very heavily. Yeah. Environment, there's there's actually about three or four different ways in Docker to inject your variables into there. Yeah, and so it, you've got Docker secrets as well. Yeah, Docker secrets, and then there's there's things like uh, you know Octopus, where you know it's very yeah. sim similar kind of concept to Visual yeah. Studio Online, and, which is Azure DevOps, whatever it's called so these the, days. The, the client I'm working with at the moment, we do that. We set it all up um, within Octopus. Mm -hmm. um, and what we do is we just use a transformation that sort of says curly brackets, go and replace that curly bracket yep. with, the, with this value. Um, but the downside to that is you've still got your secrets exposed yep, on the, on server. the file system, but we'll move on to that in a minute. Yeah, I mean, that was actually going to be my next point there with the... Uh -huh. with what I currently do with one of my lawsuits, it's actually the DNI website. Um, we actually have uh, a Docker set up for that. It's it's a simple website, but because we're geeks and because we kind of want to play with it, I push all of the Docker configuration. It's in our open source um, repository on GitHub. Um, but there's an environment uh, environment file that Docker uses to read any kind of secrets or any connection strings in there. But there's also additional secrets that we use within Docker secrets to do replacements in the... Yeah. Uh, in the Docker Compose file as well, yeah. using environment variables and using the secrets. Yeah. So it's quite it's quite a convoluted, complicated yeah. setup, but it's required because we don't want to be exposing those things. Yeah. And one of the other things that I've been advocating um, in the talks I've been doing is to add another layer into it, is to encrypt your secrets 
even though they're going into some encrypted format. Yes. So in .NET Core, um, all your configuration gets in, in, injected via dependency injection mm -hmm. by an iConfiguration interface. You can do some bit, bits of magic, trademark, inverted quotes <laughs> mm -hmm. on, the, on the live stream, um, to then build a bridge class and go and decrypt those values before it hits your actual main code. So when we're talking about iConfiguration, this is the uh, this is injected at uh, it's injected at runtime, yeah. um, but there's also the i options as well, which allows you to yeah. pull individual sections yeah. of your configuration in. Yeah. So, so, so what what i options gives you is that you can refer to one part of your configuration, and then you can bind that into a class. And then you can either say, I want the value as it was at startup. I want the current value or, and this is getting into the whole dependency injection stuff, is you can make it scoped, which means each time a new request comes in, I'll go and look for it. So that way you get over a problem we used to have with web config in framework world, where every time the web config changed, your whole application restarted. Yeah. Whereas now you can go and change your config file and you just go, Okay, I've just received notice it's changed. Next time you ask me, I'll give you the new value. Or or you can force it that, that you can tell it to rely on a restart depending on your use yeah. case. There there yeah. are, it's it's highly configurable now. It's not part yeah. of the ecosystem whereas it you know used yeah. to used to literally reload everything, didn't it, when uh, Yeah. When you change things previously, not, not great if you use this in the middle of a transaction. No, or, or uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um I don't think I ran into that, but I imagine you would with highly concurrent systems, high yeah. concurrency systems. We've got a few a few comments related to okay. config. We've got um, uh, Geo Progman, who is uh, Jamie, one of our Jamie. previous guests. Hello, Jamie. Um, he said, usersecrets.net core for the win. That was something you said before you were talking about them, I think. Yeah. And then Volstrat has said, I push config files for basic configuration into our repositories, but I encrypt sensitive data and preferably store those in separate files or registry keys when on Windows. Interesting. Yeah. I think registry keys are a bit legacy for those kind of things. Yeah, I'm not mean, particularly secure, but now that .NET Core is cross-plat, mm. um, yes, <laughs> registry keys are a bit bit Windows centric. Yes, they are. I mean, I work with clients that are still kind of on W. I say still WCF still has its uses. You know, it's yeah. still very relevant in some instances. But I've got some clients that essentially have hacked WCF to be a RESTful service, and yeah. they haven't moved into the .NET Core world yet. Um, and they are still very Windows dependent. Everything is Windows dependent. I'm actually talking to them about potentially containerizing their environment, yeah. and containerizing in something like Docker means that they have to run Docker on Windows. And they yeah. don't get the benefits really yeah. of doing it. So yeah, there's there's yeah. this old old um, yeah. old school stuff yeah. going on there. And what's interesting about going into the .NET Core world is you're not just limited to files. I mean, we've touched on yeah. command line and environmental variables, but you can go and write your own. It's just a set of interfaces, so you can go and write your own provider. Mm -hmm. So I've seen instances where people have written SQL Server ones. Yep. Um, one over uh, gRPC, which is an interesting take on things. What's gRPC? So gRPC is the new REST. Um, oh, okay. So gRPC is, well, it, 
it was originally Google um, Remote Procedure Call, but the G seems to have faded away from Google World now. Okay. Um, but whereas REST and HTTP rely on um, JSON or XML, now you have a very specific protocol that is much faster. Okay. Um, Mark Gravel um, talks a lot about it, um, and it's the big push from Microsoft in .NET Core 3. Interesting. I've, so, I've actually just started a project in .NET Core 3 um, so, to figure it out. So, yeah. oh. so, so certainly, if you've got um, inter-service calls, rather than everything serialized into JSON and go, going over HTTP, you can use gRPC. And that, and that basically takes a lot of the noise instead of JSON having to say ASCII version, versions. It just says, this is what the file looks like. So at this position, I'm expecting this field. Nice. That sounds interesting. So, I'm going to explore that, I think. Okay. Um, so but basically, you can write a configuration source to talk to just about anything. Because at the end of the day, it all boils down to key value pairs. Yeah. So as long as you can take whatever you are in and come down to key value pairs of strings, you can then serve that up and the iConfiguration takes care of it all for you. I remember the days of reading, uh, you mentioned SQL Server there, reading a, a config table from SQL Server, which was just a key-value key yeah. pair table, you know, with, a, yeah. with an ID as well. Yeah. Um, and that being the central uh, the central source of information for multiple systems. So it's yeah. interesting this gRPC would be, it's a yeah. very good use case for that, I imagine. Yeah. Um, so also, uh, I went to a talk and someone was using GraphQL. All right, okay. To, to query values and then serving it up as a configuration. Well, I could see that, you know, working even without. Yeah. You could, you could write your own, I said, uh, own bridge class for that, I imagine, yeah. without having it built in. But is that, is that something that .NET Core supports natively now or? No, you would, you would write your own. Right. So, so basically, configuration in .NET Core centers around two interfaces iConfiguration source mm -hmm. and iConfiguration provider. So iConfiguration source is the thing that goes and talks to whatever you're reading from, be it files, databases, um, HTTP services. Mm -hmm. That has a method on it, which is build, and that gives you an iConfiguration provider. Okay. And that's the thing where you turn it into the string key value pairs. Okay. And the key is hier hierarchical and it's separated by colons so say you've got a nested say taking the json one for example say you've got something that's three levels deep mm -hmm. then so a then b then c so it'd be a colon b colon c colon and that is your key to get to the value right in okay. there. so as long as you can generate something that gives you that high colon delimited hierarchy that's your provider configuration just picks it up from there and goes, yep, yeah, I know what to do with this. And therefore you can use that. But what you can also do is you can start to aggregate different providers. Okay. So, you, so out the box, .NET Core, when you build a new project, for example, you can start with a JSON file and then it overrides it with your user secrets. Then it overrides it with the environmental variables. And lastly, it overrides it with command line. Right. And you can aggregate or override to your heart's content. Mm. See, it's interesting. Most of the things that are, have been put into the recent version of .NET Core, I have done, but I've done them manually. You know, uh, aggregation and, and overriding variables based on 
you know hierarchical kind of uh, uh, setup. It's it's it when they become problems that everybody's trying to solve, they start putting them into the framework now, and it's quite nice to see that as well. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so um, should we talk about the downsides mm. of config files a little bit? I mean, we've touched on a little bit on a few of them. Yeah. So. Um Sorry, I think you delayed then a little bit. Your screen's going a bit funny, but we'll... Yeah, uh... <laughs> my screen started flickering around a bit. <laughs> um, okay, so, yeah, so the downsides of configuration files. Now, as far as I can see it, we've talked about the security implications of uh, of a, of putting value, secure values into a config file. There are also a few times... Um, people tend to read values from configs without treating them without validating them a lot of the time as well yeah and if you've seen that before yeah and so, certainly back in in framework the the original version where it assumed that everything was a string it was up to you to go and convert it into an integer or a boolean yeah and people would just just go yep yeah, convert it to a boolean with no error handling around it and your application goes kaboom yeah um i said i've seen that quite a lot i've also seen people uh not validate not just the types but not validating the actual data that's in yeah. there as well sometimes it's, yeah. it might be an email address that's configurable yeah. you know just simple validation helps helps along the way yeah um so we talked about committing files as well into source yeah. code that's obviously yeah. a problem it becomes yeah. less of a problem if you've got a proper somebody who controls the devops process or somebody who controls um yeah. if you do accidentally commit as well there's all, always the invalidating api keys and changing passwords and things like yeah. that we have to yeah. do that but, but but those are sort of remedial processes yeah it's best not to do in the first place i mean Absolutely. it's interesting that github if you commit something in its spots oh this might be a secret it'll warn you and say are you, are you sure you want to commit this it, that that was actually really interesting i found that out um for the dni site actually for the first time when i pushed it was, couple of years back now um for the first time i pushed i accidentally kept a, it was a test api case and it, it actually expired anyway so i'd forgotten about it i pushed it and it took and i sent an email and i was really quite impressed that it did oh. that um and it also sends me emails about secu security notifications as well yeah. which again that's i mean it has an interesting thing because i think the thing to think about with all your source code is what if it, my company was a bit like Microsoft. Everything was closed source, and then suddenly everything was open source. What things am I exposing in the source control? Hmm. I think. Uh, sorry. Sorry, no. So I say there was. Um, uh, I was. I was just reading something that Jamie wrote in the, in chat. Then he said that he uh, he loves using guard clauses uh, yeah. for for this kind of thing to big, to ensure. Big fan of those, yeah. And certainly you, you touched on that validation. Um, we touched on having a bridge class earlier. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about bridge class, what we're saying is something that acts as a go-between. Now, so sometimes you have an adapter, adapter pattern where you can't control the interfaces, but bridge class is pretty much the same thing, but you're in control. You can change things as much as you want. So you can intercept stuff on the way. So with configuration, you might have we talked about encryption so having encrypted values stepping in decrypting them before they hit the main system same with validation you can sit in the middle and go is this value not quite right 
can I sort it in my bridge class or do I need to raise an exception? Mm -hmm. And then when you do raise the exception as well, it's handling it appropriately yeah. and making sure that, I don't know, sometimes, again, sometimes if you've got some global exception handling, it just gets lost and yeah. you don't see the error. But again, that's up to the developer to determine. Yeah. That's a whole yeah. new show, to yeah. be fair, yeah. <laughs> how yeah. to handle exceptions. Yeah. But one of the other main problems with config files is if you're running a web farm, so mm. you've got 20 servers, unless you've got a continuous deployment system going on, there is the risk that your config files could start to drift apart. Yes. So, so you may have a value, say, say a, an API key, and one of those nine, one of those twenty servers doesn't get updated. If someone in the load balanced farm hits that twentieth server, they're going to hit a problem. Yeah. So this is where the centralized kind of a yeah. database or the the what we, we gr the grpc stuff would come in yeah. handy. Yeah. And again, we'd normally, I think if you're running a, thinking about it though, if you're running a web farm, you've got a, a load balanced situation, you probably would have a fairly yeah. well-established yeah. process and it'd probably yeah. be automated. You would hope so. I hope so. I mean, I have, <laughs> I have seen it with people who run one or two servers in a web farm for DR or, uh, yeah. you know, more simple scenarios. Yeah. DR servers quite often get left out of the mix because they're not yeah. automated a lot of the yeah. time. Or the rather, they're an afterthought. Yeah, yeah. So, but what was interesting was uh, Michael Feathers, who's known for um, his book about refactoring code. He put a tweet out um, back in October, saying that along the lines that configuration is just global mutable state. Yeah, I remember you posting that. Yeah, and and it, it, it is right in the and. There was a whole sort of stream, and as I follow it, people were sort of saying, well, if you've got continuous deployment, do you really need configuration files? So if you're doing... But then we come back to where's the line between what goes into source control so that you can do continuous deployment? Does it go into the continuous deployment secrets? And it starts to... And if you've got a whole load of configuration where do you stop it starts to unravel a bit i think for me it really depends on the situation it depends on the company um i've done work with big companies where they didn't want the developers to have any kind of access to any kind of secrets they yeah. didn't have access to any live apis or even internal apis yeah. especially not external ones and even uh, even the databases that they queried for integration testing occasionally in this specific instance, is not normally how integration testing should be done, but no. they had central servers that were set up in a particular state and they were just read from. They, all, all they did was read operations and they needed to verify that, that things worked. Um, but yeah, the, the configure in that instance, I was actually doing the DevOps uh, work for that and everything everything was hidden in secrets. Everything was, was farmed off to Octopus or Visual Studio um, it was Visual Studio Online at the time. Yeah. I keep getting it wrong because <laughs> Azure because it changes name every five minutes. So in, it was it was secrets in Azure DevOps. I've had another situation where I was the only developer working on a piece particular piece of software. I put the DevOps system together in something like GitLab, um, and I put a, a a gated a gated branching system in there. Everything, all the secrets again were stored as private. Um, uh, private global variables in the in the GitLab build, yeah. um, 
when I came back to do more work, I actually adhered to the rules that I'd put in place and I couldn't have, I didn't have access to the, the variables because they'd all been changed and the, the company was, you know, they were quite big on the security. So it, it works really well, but it takes a long time to get yeah. them kind of setups working and yeah. not intrusive and not um, stopping yeah. productivity with developers. And, and I think this is where um, the user secrets in .NET Core come in really useful because then you, as long as you've got a decent mocking system going on, then you can just have some secrets going in and using your bridge to intercept it and so on. As long as you've got something in your unit test that stops calls actually going out to the outside world, you can intercept them and make sure everything goes in and box responses back. Yeah. I say it's. I I have to be honest. I haven't used .NET secrets in um, user secrets in .NET Core yeah. yet. It's all every time I've needed to do any kind of configuration and it's needed to be secure. It's been in the actual DevOps platform. Yeah. Um, or it's been such a simple website that it's been fine to use a uh, server deployed configuration file, which yeah. is manual. So the DNI website, it's manual, yeah. that file. I don't have a DevOps system, but I am working on putting one together. But even then, it will not be in source code. So I need no. to figure out a way to do that, which will yeah. probably be, end up being some kind of secrets within the actual um, deployment system, yeah. whatever I decide yeah. to use. Yeah. So. Uh that's the question then. So that, does that lead us on to, do we actually need config files or, or is that, or is it, is it subjective? I, th I think it is subjective. Um, but in, in the .NET Core world where everything is coming through I configuration, you could mock all your secrets or mm -hmm. your configuration. So you, for example, there's um, a memory version of the source provider so while you're doing unit tests and what have you you can just use the me memory provider which is just a key value dictionary mm -hmm. and pass everything through there for all your unit testing mm, interesting so i've only ever used um the i options class to yeah. i mean obviously i use the, the i configuration yeah. class to, to create it and bind yeah. it but the the i options class i, I only use that as because i want a, a subset of the values yeah. for a particular yeah. service class or something. So I, I, don't, I only mock that, and it's easy to mock that. You don't need to use a memory yeah. class or the, anything like that. If, if you're mock, and, and this comes on to something that I, I go through in my talk, in that you can then take it one step further, and the actual class that iOptions then push binds your values into, you just mock that. Now, what you can do is in your dependency injection, I, I see, right. You can unwrap the I options into just that class. So I options, um, for those who aren't aware, doesn't give you the value just out of the box. What you have to do is you either have to say, I want the, va the value, if it's the original one or current value, if it's options monitor. So you always have to unwrap to get your value out okay if you unwrap it in your dependency injection then everything you're injecting into just says i want my settings yeah general or whatever in. yeah so if you then extract an interface out of my settings so you just say i my settings you just mock your i my settings you don't even have to mock i options then 
What's nice about that is say you've got several um, libraries that contribute into your application, you would have to take the um, NuGet package, the, the options NuGet package along with you for those libraries. Mm -hmm. If you've just got a common library yep. with iMy settings in, you don't have to drag along that NuGet package along to all your other projects. Mm. I, I mean, that that would be more preferable, especially if it's a shared class or something like that. Yeah. It's, uh... Yeah, I think I haven't had haven't run into any problems with using iOptions and especially not mocking because at the end of the day it doesn't matter. You're just what, mocking an interface. Yeah, I'm, I don't really care what's in the da the data yeah. in that. The beauty the beauty of doing proper TDD is that we don't care what we're mocking. No, um, no. even yeah, even when we get down to in, uh, we're talking about configuration. I was going to go too far into TDD <laughs> then, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think um, I, you've given me a lot of food for, food for thought here, especially in .NET Core 3, which is there's some new things in there that I haven't touched on, um, which I'm, I'm only, I said I've only this week, uh, yes, it was the beginning of this week, I started putting together my new company website, and I currently have a, a web API backend, a .NET Core web API backend, with a Angular front end, and it's completely and wholly inadequate, um, inappropriate for my particular website. So what I'm actually doing now is looking at ASP.NET Core 3 MVC so I can figure out what the changes are. It's not something that I would probably use in a um, production environment these days because normally I'm writing line of business applications, but I want to play with it and figure it out. And I think you've given me a lot of things to play around with here. And oh. I'm uh, I'm looking I'm quite looking for I quite like configuration though I'm I'm yeah. I'm a weird developer I enjoy doing ETL for God's sake you know I <laughs> I like doing lots of different things yeah. and I don't mind faffing around with code for ages to get it just you know exactly right as yeah. it should be okay so I think um, we've actually we've actually talked about quite a lot of things that we've uh, we've we've got we've got in here is there anything else in configuration then that you've uh, come across that's worth mentioning um I, I think we pretty much covered it all i'm ju just scrolling through some notes i made and yeah i think we've covered it all i mean certainly we, we touched on the bridge class and i could ramble on for a whole hour about sort of going into the solid principles and using the bridge to take you into solid um but well, I haven't got another hour now. <laughs> no, we've, we've, we've actually got we've actually got quite a, a little bit of time, so we can talk about that a little bit and at least a higher level, anyway. Okay, so so I've touched on several of the the points there. So when I was talking about um, getting away from the the I options and so your your bridge class, what that gives you is single responsibility mm -hmm. because your class is just serving up settings just for one tiny purpose. Um, the L, Liskov substitution, because you've got the interface, so you've got polymorphism, you can sw swap it all in as well. D, dependency version, you're injecting it in. Mm -hmm. um, interface segregation, again, by splitting it all out, if you've got your configuration split into, say you've got 20 bit sections across your whole configuration, then if you give each one its own discrete interface, then as far as your applications, because you might even have an interface just to say, I want a SQL connection string. That's all I want. I don't care about the rest of it. Just splitting it all out to the smallest bite-sized pieces that you want. Right. I mean, I'm not, I'm an advocate for design patterns and solid. And I mean, I, I said, I, I, I don't mind 
faffing around with code, but mm. do you not think sometimes that the way that modern programming um, or modern .NET Java programming is going, especially with all of the uh, the granularity of it. Do you not think sometimes it's overkill for some applications? So, sometimes it is. If you want to get something out there quick, quick and dirty, just do a quick transformation of something or something to move a few files, yeah, the quickest, dirtiest way is, is fine. But if you want something that's going to last for a few years, you it's want TDD, maintainable, new developers coming in, wanting to, needing to get up to speed with it, then that's where the patterns really come into their own. And, and yes, you might be writing a lot more boilerplate code to get it like that, but it's maintainable, mm. testable. Um, it, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of Solid, but that said, I've started moving more into sort of a functional way of thinking which obviously is a different paradigm functional orientated solid world functionals are becoming a lot more popular these days especially with the advent well i say the advent it's fairly old now in the dotnet world mm. of of lambdas yes um, and also i think it's ecm script 2015 the latest one whatever it is maybe 2017 yeah. um, that's now got that's also got what they call arrow functions lambdas yeah. uh, built into the language yeah. as well and typescript as well it's yeah. becoming very very common on multi-paradigm languages in multi-paradigm languages and one thing that i've been playing around with lately um I, I gave my talk up in sheffield a little while back and um at the same time simon painter was doing the talk about functional c sharp and it made me start to think about the way I do things. And one of the things I've said about sort of having an interface, just say, go and get me a SQL connection. So you've got an interface, then you've got a class implementation and so on. Alternatively, you could just have a Lambda function registered in your DI container. Mm -hmm. So if you've got a particular signature of a delegate that says, um, get SQL connection, then you just register the delegate in your DI container to go and get that configuration value. And therefore, you don't need an interface. You don't need a class. You've just said, I've got a function. Just, and, and I think that's where we may be starting to move towards is this sort of small discrete things just make functions yeah. rather than a full-on interface class, multiple implementations. I think the, what's, what's happened is we've moved towards this object-oriented world um, in the enterprise because of the enormousness of the projects a lot of the time yeah. and because of the uh, we, we're, we're wanting to move away from these monoliths that create real big legacy problems um, and the problem with introducing the the functional paradigm into things like c-sharp I'm, I'm a fan of it but the problem of introducing it and introducing additional flexibility such as you know inject injecting a, a lambda instead of injecting classes or, or you know registering services and things like that is that we we run the risk of giving programmers a, l a little bit too much flexibility as well so they may yeah. end up going too far back into that world yeah um, but i mean i'm i'm not too worried because i think if you've got if you've got senior programmers and you've got code reviews and you've got a, you know a, a good ecosystem built into your company you tend to be able to uh, get the right result from the people yeah. that you you know you're empowering and the, and the developers yeah. as well that, that are doing the work as long as no one goes back to using go-to's well 
I saw a go to the other day in, in a, a legitimate go to in a piece of uh, in a piece of code. Um, forgot what it was now. It's probably just a batch file, but it was oh, it was it was oh. a build system. It was a build system that I'm looking at for one of my clients, and they've got Perl running one part of the the build system, and then they've got batch files, which they call make files, which confused the hell out of me because they were referring yeah. to them as make files for ages, and they're not make files. Yeah. They're just no. batch files called make file, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and the, the make files are just running loads of commands, and there's go tos everywhere in it. But that my yeah. part of my job is to actually look at that and go. This needs to be replaced with yeah. shiny new DevOps world type thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a uh, nice bit of PowerShell in there. Well, yeah, I, I also did a job fairly recently, the last few years, that I wrote about ten thousand odd lines of PowerShell to get a, a fully integrated um, application prototype. No, application kind of setup. Um, it was a templating system that created templates um, from Visual Studio templates, then set up things like all of the. Azure DevOps builds all of the code policies, absolutely everything using PowerShell. So there was so much of it, but it was uh, I loved it by the end of it. But I wouldn't like to be the person maintaining it now. Put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> right. So um, I, in terms of configuration, I I feel like we've covered a lot there. Yeah. There's um, there's a few other things that we we probably haven't touched upon in too much and it's more to do with it's less to do with the application configuration and more to yeah. do with like the configurations that surround the applications okay so we talked about docker a little bit yeah and that's the deployment but then we've got things like um i mean have you i'm assuming with you working in the dotnet core world you do a fair amount of linux work these days where i'm at at the moment we're not we're still very much in a windows okay environment um it'd be nice to go to a Linux, Linux world because obviously it's cheaper hosting, but at the moment we're very much in a Windows world. So, I mean, Linux is typically basically based on configuration files, everything. Yes. As I've moved more into the Linux world with .NET Core and I've, I've got a lot more experience in the Bash world, it's amazing that the entire operating system runs it because we're so used to having the registry in, yeah. in Windows and everything is everything's different but the configuration files in that instance are there's none there's no standards there there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of variation on on how each daemon or application or uh, subsystem uses its configuration files there's so many different types of formats as well um have you there you go there's a question for you okay have you got a favorite um format of con config file and and what kind of ones have you because we've got jason we've got xml yeah, we, we, we we got jason so so i mean in, in the talk i give i, I spend five minutes slagging off web.config and how much i hate the xml the xml version of it. it's not just the it's not just the xml though the xml's oh, fine no. it's yeah the, it's, it's the schema the, oh my god it's it's I, especially I mean, wcf ones I, you I took the words it. right out of my mouth i mean <laughs> i i have seen sort of like thousand line web configs oh. where there's about 20 or 30 WCF services being called. Um, time you've got sort of ASP.NET throwing in its bits, and then you've got some custom config for say, um, NLog or something like that, yep. that takes up a whole load of lines and it just goes on. And all it wants is one angle bracket in the wrong place. Yep. And your application won't start. And do you think you can find that angle bracket? And there's, there's not that many tools to help you. No. Um help you debug that either right. but i mean wcf is particularly bad because as soon as you need to change anything about the, the default setup the default bindings yeah. the 
if you have to insert a, a literal ton of, of XML and it becomes yeah. convoluted and complicated. Yeah. But like I said, we are in a better world now. Yeah. I think with JSON. So yeah, back, I mean, to, back to the config. Yeah. So so the formats. I mean I'm a big fan of the JSON format. See, I've recently been working with YAML quite a lot. I yeah yeah. Um, not I've been doing a lot of stuff with Swagger and tend to use YAML with, with the Swagger. Well, sorry, Open API as it's now called. Yeah. Um, the YAML format for those. Yeah, I've uh, I've been using YAML a little bit, and um, there was one other one I came across the other week. And I can't for the life of me remember it, but it was apparently quite common, especially in the Linux world. Um, I'm not going to keep going on about it, but yeah, I found YAML quite uh, difficult to understand in initially, especially because you can override it as well. It's kind of got an inheritance yeah. Uh, yeah. inheritance schema, um, and then there's also the specific implementations, things like Docker Compose. It's got its own way of handling the over the overrides. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't work as the the, the yeah. YAML schema kind of yeah. puts it. It's proprietary in a way. I mean, what what, what is interesting is, is when I sort of started play, first playing around with ASP.NET Core is there, there was a flashback to about 1993 when I saw it supported any files. Oh, wonderful. Back to Windows 3.1. <laughs> I still see them. I still see yeah. them in production, um, yeah. especially with like desktop applications as well. Yeah. Yeah, so, so that, that 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 was um, a flashback to when I first started programming with VB3. I don't think I've ever written an application that uses a. a I mean, I, I also started with VB6 and classic ASP. Yeah. Um, never used that. Actually, yeah. created an application that needed an any file. Yeah, I, when, when I first started programming, I, I was writing desktop applications, yeah. and it, in VB3, the default was to use any files. Do you do you see any limitations with um so we, you said JSON's your favorite at the moment then so have you, yeah. do you see any limitations with JSON? Um only in in terms of sort of making sure your curly brackets are all sort of like lining up and so sometimes you have to be careful with escaping certain bits but generally you can load it into something like Notepad++ and you can spot an error quite easily. The see, only I'm trouble is is you're still indenting lot and and you could get down into quite a long down hierarchy. I think there's a decent amount of tools out there for, again, debugging JSON. And it's yeah. fairly simple and fairly easy to follow. There's not that many kind of data types in JSON, but that also is almost its downfall. Numbers yeah. are just numbers. Yes. There's no, there's no um, deviation between a decimal or an integer or a they're all the same thing. I know what decimal have a point in it, but it, it JSON yeah. doesn't recognize that yeah. as anything other than a number. Uh, yeah. The same goes for dates as well. Yeah. Dates are actually, there's actually some limitations uh, in dates and it's, it's something to do with the time zones. I can't quite remember, but yeah. you have to specify a time zone in, in yeah. JSON if you're using proper, yeah. you know, you're, you're passing it over and, and so, certainly a RESTful service. Going back round to having your bridge classes, the interceptor in the demo I did, I show it. I want. I I gather some times, mm -hmm. and ra rather than having to specify a full time format, I just express the time as you normally would have hour colon minutes, right. and let my bridge class take it from that string format into a timestamp. Well, oh, dot, sorry, a time span. Sorry. .dot net calls particularly good at at time and date conversions. Yeah. Um, or .net in general, I think is, yeah. is particularly good at that. So yeah, um, and learning learning which data type to use is another skill as well. There's, yeah. There isn't a, a, a GUID or a unique identifier data type in JSON either as well, which 
sometimes causes mm. problems for yeah. formatting. But again, it's not not the end of the world. It's just a string that you can convert and test, yeah. you know, validate, yeah. as we, we said at the beginning yeah. of the, the show. Okay. Right, so let's. Uh, I think we should close the show now. Okay. Um, unless there's anything particularly that you wanted to mention that you've no, I, I think I think we we've we've covered configuration. We have, yeah, I mean, all, all the way round. There is a this. It's one of them things that not every developer uh, understands, and I think it's it's a key. You get to a certain point where when you understand what configuration's for and why it's useful and why it's why we have to take these very these variables out of our source code and put them into config or into ci cd systems i think it it makes you a better developer it did me anyway when i figured yeah. it out it's a long time back now but when i figured it out it made me realize that it's not just me that's developing other people need to uh, and and this this ver this um, we, you know what we didn't talk about how to identify what the config value is and what isn't. Why would you why would you put something in a config file? Why, I know we've got talked about connection strings, things that change, yeah. but are there scenarios where you think config is used in overkill? Have you seen any examples of um, a, a value that's been put into config that doesn't change that you think? probably shouldn't be there um i i think feature switches are an example where it comes down to how mature your cd system is because there, there's you could say okay what i'll do is i'll just have a hard-coded class of my feature switches i'll just mm. go and change the source code for that go and push out a new version your feature switches are in place so that may be one example where just having them out in a config file where, because you're going to use your CD system to go and push your config file out anyway. So you might as well just push your application. I think come with that, it comes down to application downtime mm. because if you can't afford for your application to come down, unless you've got a system where you can go and swap from one pool of load balance service to another pool. So if you can't have any application downtime, that's where config files come into their own in .NET Core world because you don't have to restart your application. You can just say, okay, I'll just go and push out my new config files and it will just pick them up. Right. Okay, fair enough. I said I've, I've come across a few instances where config has been used in overkill. Um, I've, okay. I've actually seen people use config for things like email templates and which should be separate files really which are no, config yeah, in yeah, a way exactly. i haven't come across that, that so that you know instead of if you've got a, a an email template where you need to send yeah. you've got a system that sends out different types of emails yeah um, normally what you would do is have separate i don't know have separate json files for the data in yeah. those in those emails and another like a html file or HTML, some kind of markup CXD, file yeah. that has for the layout yeah. um but yeah i've actually seen people that have put all of the data within I mean, it was XML, you know, it was, it was web config mm. days, but um, used used basically a, a custom schema that they set up, a custom config schema that had all of the, the con and that that's overkill. You that need to is, segregate that. Is, that. that. I, 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 I wouldn't even conceive that. <laughs> there, there, are, there are times when we're not sure, you know, there, there are times yeah. when we, we, there is, for example, um, uh, let's take email again. We've got an email yeah. where um, the from address of an email is always going to be the same. It's never going to change across systems yeah. or anything like that. Should that be config 
or should that be hard corded? I think we with that, I've seen examples of both. Yeah. And I think it always comes back down to if it's only going to change once in a blue moon, you may as well hard code it. But put it in its own file where it's a constant. So you've only got it in one place because the other problem is having it littered throughout your code base and then you've got to do a search and replace. Yeah, absolutely. Across, across your whole project. So as long as it's set up as a constant, so I don't have a problem with that. Do you can do you I mean we we both use constant classes, you know, that have yep. got just basically a list of variables. Would you consider that config in any way, shape and form, or is that an entirely different paradigm? E I, I think it is config. It's just not it's, in your usual paradigm of config. But it's it's not mutable config. It's immutable no, it's until immutable. it's only mutable when we change the actual compilation. You know, when we recompile, yeah. which isn't config then at that no. instance. So we're getting into specifics here. But I just the, <laughs> the things keep popping into my head, and I'm like, yeah. well, what actually? You know, when yeah. I think about config, it's all about you make decisions every day. Lots of decisions when you you're programming, and sometimes they're wrong. You know, we're not all perfect, yeah. and we all we all make mistakes, and we learn from them. This is why when we look at code that we wrote two years ago or ten years ago, and um, we look at it and go, God, I was an idiot back then. Well, well, there's, um, <laughs> I I don't know whether it's his, but quite often on .dot it rocks. Richard Campbell says. Only two people knew what, what I was thinking when I wrote this code, God and me. Yeah. Now God only knows what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay, so let's let's close the show then. We have okay. done enough config talking, I think. So we have a section at the end of the show called Bring Your Own Manual. We used to have an RTFM, which was yeah. a whinge about something that we'd done in the week, but now Bring Your Own Manual is a learning experience. So what have we learned this week? Um, and I'm going to let you go, go first, Steve. Have you learned anything new? It doesn't have to be technical. It could be about okay. people. It could be anything. I, I, had a, I'm gonna, I flipped a coin, and I had a geeky one and a non-geeky one. So I'm going to go for the non-geeky one. Okay. This week, I learned that the makers of Smarties and M&Ms became best friends during the Spanish Civil War, and they had a gentleman's agreement not to compete against each other, and that's why M&Ms didn't appear in the UK until the 1980s. They were actually around from the 1940s in America. Right. Well, I, d I wasn't around then, so I didn't know no. I didn't know that that actually <laughs> happened. But that's an interesting fact. Very interesting. <laughs> Good stuff. Right. So um, mine, mine, I prepared this last week because I had two last week, but I, I, I forgot to refine it a little bit further. So sorry if this is uh, not the best of, of BYOMs. But I learned that most people most of my clients at least don't know what they're selling they haven't got a clue what their products are or they do have a clue but they don't they can't define them in a short sentence they don't have a vision for their product and they don't have a description for their product and whenever i speak to them this usually the number one thing that i try and figure out is what is it you sell what is it that you you want your customers to buy what's unique about it you know um as i get more senior and i i realize kind of more that the, the, there's a world outside of code um and I, and I do a lot more process driven stuff these questions come up a lot more and i have to help them realize that and a lot of the time it's about the way that i ask questions and the way that i i I challenge them, I suppose. Maybe the, some of them, I'm sure, don't like it. 
but I'm sure some of them do. But yeah, it's it's amazing. A lot of the time, people don't know what they're selling or don't know fully how they're actually um, what market they're kind of um, serving, and sometimes they need to figure that out before you can actually figure out everything else underneath it, such as how do the develop well, how are the developers how are they going to develop how are you going to develop your jira instance how are you going to set up your user stories and your features and your epics and how do they relate to the actual business that you're serving as a company and a lot of people especially those that are trying to move from a, a waterfall world into a more agile and scrum world which you know it, it's still happening yes there are still companies out there that are trying to do this and don't fully understand and realize the benefits of 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 the scrum world and, and and the agile world that that's the number one thing is that they need to realize what they're trying to sell in order to you know get the get the work done in a more efficient way hmm. not particularly interesting not as interesting as your fact anyway steve <laughs> <laughs> but but then aren't we all software companies now what we actually sell that, that that's the argument about banks and lots of these financial institutions they're just big software companies now yeah um most yeah most businesses these days have some element of software in them i, I made the right career choice <laughs> we, we did didn't we we, we did we, yeah you know i actually had a, a a client a few years ago or a potential client who made me worry about my job for the first time ever made me worry about is programming actually going to be around forever because i've always thought that you know the, the more we get into it there's always going to be someone who needs to write the computers apparently they've developed a an AI that works alongside the developer and does most of the boilerplate and most of the, and I, I, I didn't get involved, so I don't know how far it went, but when they explained it to me, it was like, that's doing a lot of the things that I do on my day-to-day -day job. <laughs> well, there's even AI built into Visual Studio 2019 now. Well, AI's everywhere, but there's also yeah. there's different levels of AI as yeah. well. And Yeah, I think you're gonna type this next. Yeah. <laughs> I'm uh, jo Josie's. Um, Josie's been showing off her uh, Google Home or Alexa or whatever yeah. she's got. You know, the, 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 I'm a tin foil hat guy with those kind yeah. of things. <laughs> same, same here. I, I was all about writing my own home automation system a few years ago. I started playing around with Node.js and started going right. I'll I'll write it from scratch and I'll turn all the lights on. And, and I was like, you know what? Actually, this is this is not probably not a good thing. I don't want it to control my heating and, yeah. and everything else that goes with it okay right we are now at the end of the show so you do now get a chance to pimp yourself if you've got okay. any side projects or business or anything else you want to uh want to talk about so feel free okay so i've been i've mentioned a couple of times that i give a talk about configuration i've done it at various um .NET user groups so if any user groups are interested in having me come along um you can get in touch with me via steve talks code on twitter um, I've got a blog site, stevetalkscode.co.uk. And if you want to see a video of it, I gave it at uh, .NET Chef. Um, if you go and look on YouTube for .NET Chef, uh, config is easy. You should find it there. Okay, good stuff. Um, and yes, thanks to everybody in chat. There's been, uh, I think Jamie and Volstrat have been uh, having a good old natter between themselves. <laughs> It's a bit too much for me to read out during the show, but uh, thank you very much for that, guys. Um, and our time for our pimpage. So you can visit our website on www.dnistream.live where you find all the links to all of our podcasts, previous and this one. This one will probably be published tomorrow, as always. Um, 
you can use the website to get into our Discord. Uh, you can use it to get onto our YouTube and basically everywhere and everything. We are updating it. It's a bit broken at the moment. Sorry about the uh, the show listing page. It doesn't. There's some caching problem with our fireside thing. So I'm, I'm I know how to solve it. I just haven't had the time to solve it. I will get onto it at some point. It's not a configuration issue, is it? It's not. It's not. It's actually. It's a. It's fully a caching issue. It's um, if I basically occasionally and i think it's a load balancing issue on their side occasionally i get a, either a one byte response or a zero byte response from their rest api and i've told the developer and he's, he's like there's only you and two other people that use it so i'm not going to fix it and I thought, oh, well you know we actually bought the service because <laughs> but anyway it is what it is and i need to cache the results when they're available so you know so they will be available at all times um so yes, you can uh, use the contact form to get in touch with us, send us a funny dev story, or be a guest on the show if you want. And that's it. All that's left to say goodbye. Thank you very much, Steve. Thank you, Chris. And thank you very much, everybody in chat. Bye. See Bye, you next everyone. week. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.